and join me in the book of Malachi. We're going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover. Uh, book of Malachi, if you're new with us, the book of Malachi, it's easy to find. It's at the very end of the Old Testament. Just go there, you'll find the book of Malachi. You could also find it by going to the first book of the New Testament and just flipping to the left a few pages. You can find it either way. We're in the book of Malachi, and as we've gotten to the book of Malachi, we've been reminiscing on the fact that this is called an oracle of God. That term oracle, it means this is a weighty message. This is something that's been on God's heart. It's been just ruminating in his soul that he's wanting to communicate to his people. And at the very beginning of this oracle, at this weighty message, this burden that's been on the heart of God, the very first thing God says is, my love is everlasting. I've always loved you as he's talking to his people. I hand-selected you. I picked you out of every nation. I picked you. Even when you were sinful, I loved you. Even when you were in the midst of slavery, I heard you. I loved you. I delivered you from slavery because of my love for you. I rained heaven, bread from heaven because of my love for you. I had water flow from rocks. I divided bodies of water to protect you because I've loved you. Even in the midst of your rebellion, I have loved you. But after that first part of the message, God then turns his attention from describing his heart to describing their heart. After all of my love that I have given you, God's request and his question is, where is your love for me? And the first people that he addresses are his priests, his religious leaders, the people that he's put in charge and, and that confrontation really hit a high point for us. Last week, Malachi chapter two, verses three and four. Remember, as God has been wrestling with his people, and by the way, you wanna know how offensive this is to God, how troubled he is by his religious leaders. Roughly 20% of the entire oracle of Malachi is spent addressing religious leaders. Nearly one-fifth of God's entire message is spent directly speaking to the troubled hearts of religious leaders. And here's where it hit a climax, verse 3 of chapter 2. God said, behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces and the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And we read that, we're like, man, what is God so upset about? I mean, so they're not offering the best sacrifices, so they're not giving God their best. Big deal, why is God so upset he's gonna smear garbage on their face and throw them out with the trash? In order to really understand the emotion of God, you need to understand a little bit of the history of the priests, it really goes back to uh, their exodus in Egypt, their exodus from slavery, where the people were in there, and God, remember, he sent all those plagues, and the 10th plague, 
The 10th plague, God took the firstborn. He took the firstborn of Pharaoh. He took the firstborn of slaves. He took the firstborn of cattle. God took the firstborn of everything. That was the plague. The presence of God came and he just took it. But the firstborn of Israel were protected. Remember that. If they'd sacrifice an innocent lamb, put its blood on the doorposts of their house, then the presence and the judgment of God would pass over. But later on, God would claim a symbolic firstborn of Israel. Where God would claim a firstborn, and, and listen, look at what he says in the book of Numbers. This is Numbers chapter 3. I'll just put it on the screen here. Numbers Chapter 3, listen to the words of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now behold, again, behold, surprise, something's happening you're not expecting. Now behold, surprise, I've taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. He continues, says, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself, I set apart all the firstborn in Israel, for man to be, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. God said, I want the firstborn of everything. The way that's going to happen is I'm going to claim Levites. The tribe of Levi. The tribe that came from the third son of Jacob. They're mine. They will be my conduit of blessing to the people. And they will be the conduit of the people to me. They will be my servants of the temple. They will be my teachers of the law. They will be my judges of righteousness. They will be my reflection of glory. And listen, the role of the Levite was a blessing. They had this special relationship with God. They would be honored by man, cared for by God. They would live on and be sustained by the offerings and sacrifices of God's people. And they would be an instrument of righteousness for them. Throughout the Old Testament, to be of the tribe of Levi was an honor. To be a member of the religious leadership was a privilege. And there was this amazing opportunity and great relationship between them and God. Listen to how God describes it in verse 5, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verse 5, he says, My covenant with him, talking about Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. God said, here's how I describe my relationship with Levi, with the priests, with the religious leaders. It was a covenant. I made a commitment of myself to them. A term covenant is the same as marriage. Like I have committed myself and they were supposed to commit themselves back. God gave them gifts. That term gave, by the way, means to hand deliver, assign ownership, deposit directly into someone's account. Listen, I completely paid for this. This is a relationship that I set. I empowered. I fulfilled. I paid for. I gave it to them. And the types of gifts he gave, he said, I gave life and peace. 
Life and peace, that term life, is a pledge of nourishment and renewal, a pledge of care and protection. God gave them a promise of life, of sustenance, protection, and provision. Because I gave life to them. Not only life, I gave peace, shalom. I not only gifted them this promise of provision and protection, but I gave them shalom. It's more than just an absence of hostility. It's complete restoration of relationship. It's contentment in who we are in our relationship together. Man, complete fulfillment of what happens. God says, I blessed them with that. I gave them. You want to know why I'm so ticked off? about this because this is my marriage I made a commitment to these people and I gave them life and peace and by the way as a side note leaving the text God's given the same to you you know that the same type of thing that he gave these priests back then he gives priests today Jesus came right he he came so that we might have what Life. Look at what it says. John, book of John, chapter 10. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The Apostle Paul also says that because of the work of Christ, we have peace. Look at what he says in Romans 5. Romans 5, he says this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Again, not just the absence of hostility. We have communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Because of Jesus, we have life. We have peace. Man, when you understand God's commitment and expectation for the Old Testament priests, it draws so much color and power and expectation for New Testament priests. I'm going to remind you of something Peter said. I bring this up to you a lot because I want to make sure you understand the weight of your role as Christians. 1 Peter 2, look what he said to Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, drawing up this idea of the Levites in the Old Testament. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter continues, and he says this, for you once were not a people. Once you were just nothing, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have. You have this special relationship with God where God has promised you life and peace. Where you're supposed to be a conduit between God and people out there. An instrument of righteousness, the proclaimers of truth. You want to know why God's so upset? Why there's so much emotion wrapped up in Malachi? God's communicating to his religious leaders back then, and I believe his religious leaders still today. I've given you everything. I gave you myself. I've blessed you. I've empowered you. 
All I want is your devotion in return. You might be thinking, well, what does God expect if he's given all this to them? All this to them and all of this to us, what does he expect? That's what God goes into next. God goes into the expectations of God. Here's what God expects from his people, from his religious leaders, from his priests. After everything he gave to them, this is what he expects. And God goes back and he reminisces of the good old days. Here's what I expect from my leaders. And here's what I got from my leaders early on. Look what he says. Verse 5 continues, says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God gives what I'm going to summarize as three expectations. Three expectations God had from them and received from them, and three things that God wanted from his religious leaders at this time, and three things I still think God wants from his religious leaders, us, today. First one, reverence. God says, after I gave them life and peace and we had this covenant, the religious leaders revered me. They stood in awe of my name, reverence. They had a deep respect. They held him in high esteem. A term revere, coincidentally, is the Hebrew word for fear, for terror. When used in a negative context, it's supposed to be this, this just life-altering fear that just drives you to the floor. But in a positive context, it's supposed to be this aspect of reverence and awe where you recognize the greatness of God, the inferiority of you. And then you recognize that you, with all of your brokenness, are in the presence of greatness. Oh, what a privilege. What an awesome opportunity. Guys, it's when you finally recognize that you married up, when you don't deserve to be married to someone like her. Man, there's a reverence, there's a respect, there's an honor. He desires and expects his people would revere him, worship him in awe in their hearts. When he walks in, they stand. Man, it's easy to get so familiar with God, isn't it? I found myself in my marriage 28 years this summer. A couple months ago, I recognized, and it's just easier to hit the unlock button on my car and let Gretchen get in. I would have never done that 29 years ago. 28 years draws familiarity. A little too much comfort. A little too much, here you go, babe. I'll see you inside. So I've made it an attempt to try to remember, and it's been, it's been a challenge. Can I be honest with you? It's been a challenge to remember, to race ahead, open the door. Not because she demands it. It's honor. It's honoring. It's something that I gave her early on. Something that's kind of eroded over time. I wonder if the same thing happens in our relationship with God. 
There's a time where we stood in reverence. And now we'll roll in five minutes late with a coffee and donut in our hand and looking at our watch, hoping we can get out in time for football. Man, what happened? God says, here's what I want. I want this reverence. Leaders used to give it to me. He continued and he said this, not only was there reverence, there was truth. Look at what he said. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. True instruction, that term instruction from the Hebrew word Torah, a word that describes necessary teaching, the law of God, clear direction. Man, these priests gave truth. They gave the Torah clear expectations of what God wanted, that term true. They were stable, reliable, honest. There was no concern of validity. Man, when priests back in the day spoke the truths of God, people honored it, they trusted it, they respected it. There wasn't any unrighteousness. There was no flaw in what he said about the Lord. There was no pretense. Continue down a little bit. He said, look, look at verse 7. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. Not only did they give truth, but they kept it safe. They watched over it diligently. They protected it with all they had. The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and look at the result. Men should seek instruction from his mouth. Man, people hungered for it. Tell us what God wants. God said, in the good old days when I had this covenant with religious leaders, I gave them life and peace and, I, and they revered my name. They stood in awe. They didn't get too familiar with who I was. They recognized the awesome opportunity they had. They spoke in truth. They didn't cloud it with their opinions. They didn't get involved in their, in their strategies. They gave the direction of God. Where God spoke clearly, they did. When God was silent, they were. God said, man, here's my expectations. Reverence, truth, here's number three. Integrity. Reverence. Number one, truth. Number two, integrity. Number three, look at the end of verse six. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. And he walked with me. It wasn't just when the Bible talks about walking, it's not just one foot in front of the other. Man, it's this characteristic of life. Man, we had communion. You know, Adam walked with God in the garden. The disciples walked with Jesus in his ministry. I mean, these Levites, they did life. They did life with God. And look at how he describes it. They walked with me. They did life with me in peace. There's that word again. And uprightness. Uprightness. A life that is righteous, someone who walks the straight and narrow paths of life. They don't follow the masses into sin, but they follow the truth of God instead. There's no perversion in their life. 
They are above accusation and beyond doubt. Man, these religious leaders, they walked in such a way that people didn't even dare accuse them of impropriety because they would be made a fool. There's no way that priest would do that. There's no way that religious leader would do that. They're a priest, they're a Levite. They're a man of God. And look at the result of that. He, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. I'm at the end of verse six. And he turned many back from iniquity. Not only did he walk with God and up in righteousness, but he helped other people walk in righteousness. Man, people who are caught up in sin, these religious leaders would go get them and bring them back to the path that leads to the Lord. Man, they not only modeled righteousness, but they focused on going back after the unrighteous and restoring them, not judging them, not condemning them, bringing them back. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, man, good for you, anyone who restores someone back to the Lord. Man, God love that. Welcoming people back to communion with him, back to communion with the church. Man, that is fantastic. God said in the good old days, I gave myself to Levites and I claimed them as mine. We had this special relationship. I gave them life. I provided for them. I gave them peace. They had a relationship with me that no one else had. All I wanted was reverence, truth, integrity. But you know we're in trouble, right? Verse eight, you know my favorite word. Big biblical butt right there. We're changing directions. God's like, man, I remember I had this special relationship. Remember, I reserved these priests as my own people. I empowered them. I gave them everything. They revered me. They spoke truth. They were my instruments of righteousness. They brought people back. It was incredible. But, but as for you, but as for you, and what painful words, Everything was going great, but as for you. And then he goes and he lists the failures of the leaders. And I went around the block a little bit on that term failure. Ah, that might be harsh. Mm -mm. The failures of the leaders back then. But as for you, man, this was my heart, God said. This was my plan. This is my expectation. This is what I wanted. But as for you, here's your failure. But as for you, look at this. You have turned aside from the way. Instead of walking with me, instead of having this relationship where we're doing this life together, you turned away. You turned away. You turned aside from the way, that term turned aside. You left me, you abandoned me, you cut yourself off from me, you shifted your focus away from me. Man, how often I wonder these people are like, hey, where's God, God left me. God's like, I'm still on the same path, you left. 
You changed your focus. You changed your desire. You abandoned me. First thing, rebellion. You went your own way. You wanted to pursue your own power. You wanted to build your own kingdom. But as for you, this was what I expected. This is what I wanted. This is what I had. Not with you. You rebelled. You turned away. You went your own direction. You took your own path. Look at number two, not only rebellion. So walking with me, you left me. Number two, falsehood. Instead of speaking truth, instead of being an instrument of righteousness and truth, look what he says. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction you gave. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Cause many to stumble. That term means to trip up, to ruin, overthrow the faith of people based on your teaching. Instead of turning people from their sin, you've tripped them up and eroded their faith. And I read that and I thought, oh, horrible, those guys. Know where I'm going, right? Man, what a waste, those religious leaders back then. They didn't protect truth. God told all his people, raise up your children in truth. Teach them the word of God. Remind them of stories so that they won't stray away from it. They'll never forget who God is and what he expects. So I decided to look. I wonder how we're doing on truth. Want to know? Some of you are like, no, I don't want to know. Well, you're going to find out. Question was asked. How much confidence do you have in the Bible as the truth of God? Currently, 56% of Americans, 67% of millennials believe there's no difference in the authority of the Bible and any other religious text. So just under half of Americans have confidence in the Bible. It's even worse with our children. The Bible... Book of Mormon, Dianetics, they're all the same in terms of truth. When asked where they go as a source of their truth, hey, if you want truth then, if you don't go to scripture, if you want truth, where do you go? Ready for these? 36%. Most people checked the best source of truth, a news reporter. You want truth? Turn on channel five. You'll get it. Holy moly, right? It gets even better. 27%, they find truth from a trusted friend. I'm like, all right, that's all right. That's a quarter. Quarter of population. You know, I work out, I, I, I asked a trusted friend. 22% said they trust a teacher. 14% they trust a pastor. 14%. They trust a pastor they know. You want truth? 14% said, yeah, if I want truth, I'll ask the pastor I know. So either most people don't know a pastor or they don't trust what they said. 7% said, you want truth? Ask a politician. <laughs> Here's the stinger. Ready for this? 6%. You want truth? Ask a Christian author or a megachurch pastor. 
our culture trusts a politician more than the spokesperson of faith in our culture. And you know who young pastors model their faith after, model their ministry after? You know how elders model their churches after? Mega church pastors, Christian authors. Most young pastors want to be conference speakers. And I look at this and I think, the least impactful aspect of truth, where culture says, I know where to get truth, I'm going to buy a Christian book. They'd rather listen to a politician. Man, I was reading this thinking, in my own heart, man, I, I read about these Old Testament priests and I think, oh, what a waste. You had every opportunity. Man, you blew it. And then I look at our culture. Have we done any better? Best case scenario, 14% of people will ask a religious leader. God says, here's your failures. You've rebelled against me. You left me. Number two, your falsehood. Your truth, you haven't protected it. The way you're giving it leads people astray. God's not done yet. Look at the end of verse 8. Said, and you've corrupted the covenant of Levi. The term corrupted means to ruin, destroy, to bring down the entire house that God built before. Man, everything I wanted to do with the Levites, you broke it. Everything that I had built, you brought it all down. You corrupted it. Once again, I shook my head in disgust, thinking, oh, Horrible Old Testament priests, losers. We'd be in a different world today if they would have done their job, right? I just felt this nudge in my heart saying, Brian, maybe do a little research. How are y'all doing? How's your people, your generation? How much confidence do people have in the integrity, right? Back in the old days where God was reminiscing, man, people loved. They trusted religious leaders. How much trust do people have in religious leaders today? Want to know? Some of you are shaking your head. Too bad. Here you go. 36% of Americans right now claim they have confidence in religious leaders. 36%. In a Christian nation, by the way. Quote, unquote, 36%. Let me give you some of the history of that number first because it stings more that way. In 1973, 70% of Americans said they had confidence in religious leadership. 70% in the 70s. Now, I was born at the tail end or the early part of the 70s, so I wasn't a lot of a, I, I missed a lot of the 70s. But let me tell you, those are some crazy days, Right? Those of you who were alive and functional and cognizant of the 70s, those were wild. 70% of people, though, they had reverence. They trusted the integrity of leaders. Then the 80s came. There's a string of financial scandals that rocked the church. Confidence of culture dropped to just above 50 in the 80s. All these televangelists, remember those days? All the famous guys just started to just crumble as did people's trust in religious leaders. But it's still over 
2000s came. Sex abuse in the Catholic Church. For the first time in our nation's history, confidence in religious leaders was below 50%. More people distrusted religious leaders than trusted. And to be honest, I don't blame them. But it gets even worse. See, after that, after the early 2000s, there continued to be scandals. Everyone figured out, oh my gosh, it wasn't just the Catholic Church. It was the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the non-denominational church. It wasn't just financial abuse. There wasn't just sexual abuse, but there was verbal abuse as well. Like all of a sudden, all these pastors were, were being accused of, of cursing out their staff and, and being over-authoritative and controlling of their people, of just taking church stuff and doing their own thing with it. And all of that abuse is what gave rise now. 36% of Americans claim to have confidence in religious leaders. 36% of Americans. If my math is right, that's 64% say, ah, I don't trust your integrity. I don't trust the truth you give. I don't trust the word of God that comes from your mouth. And we wonder why churches are closing. Why kids are leaving the faith. Why the movement of God seems more and more impotent to influence culture. See why I wanted to preach Malachi. I think the word of the Lord to his people back then still applies to his people today. Man, I gave you everything. I gave you life and peace, communion with me. You are my instruments of righteousness, my leaders of worship, my instructors of truth. You are my models of integrity. Your homes are supposed to be little beacons of of the glory of God. And you, you tell me. Have we rebelled? Have we turned aside? Have we left the plans and strategies of God for our homes, for our lives, for our families, for our churches? Are we about speaking the truth of God? Where God speaks loudly, we speak loudly. Where God speaks softly, maybe we should speak softly. Do we put in our opinions and equate them to the truth of God? Do we have integrity? Man, we're so quick to judge the sins of the lost. Are we just as quick to judge the sins of the faithful? What do we do? I mean, kind of depressing, right? The wind kind of came out of our sails a little bit. I can feel it. Everyone's like, well, okay, man, now I don't want Jesus to come back. 
What do we do now? We got this rotten hand. Now, like, we're, we're swimming against the current. We're climbing back uphill. We've lost integrity. We've lost the faith of the people. What do we do? I have a word of hope for you. We're not the first people that have struggled with this. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was losing their way. They were divided within a kooky culture of their own. And then the Apostle Paul gave that church a step. Something for them to do. To begin to turn the tide. To go back to the good old days. When Christians, when the church, when his leaders, his priests, where they revered his name, were instruments of truth and had lives of righteousness. I want to share it with you quickly. If you have your Bibles, you're going to turn to the other side of the Bible, book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. If you know anything about the church of Galatia, you're like, really? We're turning there? They had their issues, but this is what I love about Paul. Even a church with their issues. Paul had hope. God had hope. And we should have hope. Galatians chapter 5. What do we do, Brian? How can a little church like ours in Kooky, California... How can we turn the tide? How can we make a difference? Here's how. You don't have to trash other people. You don't have to go crazy. Do this. Verse 16, Galatians 5, 16. We'll read a few verses. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so you may not do the things that you please. Look at verse 19. Here's the deeds of the flesh. Here's stuff don't do. Deeds of the flesh. Things that you want to do, don't do this, right? Deeds of the flesh are evident, Paul says. Immorality, don't do that. Impurity, don't do that. If you need a list of the impure stuff, come to me after. When in doubt, just don't do it. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, all those little bickering things that everyone gets involved in. Don't do that. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger, that includes social media, by the way, just so you know. I know they didn't have it back then, but I'm sure if Paul was writing this today, he'd said outbursts of anger, comma, this includes social media. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. I love this. And stuff like that is what Paul says. You get the gist. Don't do that stuff. You want to turn things around. Quit worrying about everyone else. You walk by the Spirit. Allow the fragrance of God to emanate from your life. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit 
Hey, do these, practice these things, more of this stuff. More fruit, right? So my wife always says, just put stuff out on the table. They'll eat it. Fruit, grapes, strawberries, cantaloupe, just throw it out there. More of that. You can have all that you want. Bacon, I'm limited. Fruit, all I want. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, love. By the way, that term love, agape, committed, communal, relational love that we have together, doesn't just say, mean, say nice things. It means really have these deep, heartfelt, communal relationships to where they trust what you say and you trust what they say. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Just do good things. Look at that. Faithfulness, gentleness. Even though you have the right and authority to just lay them out, maybe don't. After all, that's what God does with us, right? God could turn our church into a grief spot like this. But he has gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And do that as much as you want. You want to turn things around? Stop doing deeds of the flesh. Start practicing growing fruit of the Spirit in your life, in your home, in your church. I got to tell you, if we want to see the church come back, I'm not sure it's a politics thing. And I don't think it's based on the size of your campus or the level of fame of your pastor. I think it's based on the reverence of your heart to the Lord. One step, my question is, what is one step you can take this week to give God more of what he deserves in your life? More fruit. More fruit of the Spirit. One thing you can practice this week. Let's turn the tide. I was thinking, it's the first Sunday of the month. We always practice communion, and I think, what a great way to end our service because it reminds us of everything that God gave us, right? The bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you like I left heaven to take on the form of creation that I might suffer death on the cross for you. The cup. Jesus said, this is my my blood. It's a new covenant of my commitment. It not only declares you righteous, but it empowers you as an instrument of glory. Communion is God's way of reminding you, this is all I've done. And then Paul summarizes it and says, as often as you take all that God has done, you remember your part to proclaim the power of God until he returns. In your life, through your words, in your worship. Take all that God has done, receive it, and give him what he's doing. So now I want to invite you. We're going to pray, and then the ushers will dismiss you to come. And if you're a believer of Christ, if you've given your life to him for the first time today or for the hundredth time today, if you are aligning yourself with him, 
You're welcome at these tables. Take the elements, return back to your seats, and then we'll take them together as a family in our commitment to keep growing and giving God what he's doing in our life. Will you pray with me? Jesus, again, as a church, we come before you grateful for your, your truth. God, we're grateful for your provision for us. God, we confess to you that we forget. We just go through our lives and we forget all that you've done. It's as if we've grown entitled to it. We've grown too familiar with you. Or we've forgotten the cost of your love. God, you have loved us to the point you gave your own son for us. So God, we're here acknowledging the truth of your sacrifice, the power of your grace and mercy and the desires you have for us and the expectations that you deserve from us. Oh God, we pray as David did. God, renew in our hearts the joy of our salvation. Remind us of the good old days where we trusted you with everything. And we tried to model you in everything. God, for those of us who are struggling in our marriage, God, may you fill us with your power, with your strength, with your commitment, and may you renew and restore our homes. God, not for our glory or our benefit, but for your glory and your benefit. God, strengthen our churches. God, bring back that love, that agape, that communion together. God, bind this body close together and close to you. God, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because you know, we know you're with us. And we know your body is with us as well. God, drive our minds towards your truth. God, protect us from being led astray and refocus our lives on your truth. God, give us humility and power to submit to your direction, your path. God, forgive us from our, for our rebellion. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our failures. And God, we commit that we will work hard this week to forgive those who have failed us. We ask now, this closing time of communion, God, do something in our heart. Renew our commitment. Restore our peace with you. Renew our life with you. Reinvigorate our ministry for you. That we might be more effective in giving you what you deserve. In confidence that we will see you do greater things. We pray everything in Jesus' name.